We read the Word of God this morning in James chapter 2. What we read here is going to be shocking from a certain point of view because it seems to teach the opposite of what the Apostle Paul teaches. Paul, we saw last week, especially last week when we came to the mountaintop of the Christian faith, Paul teaches that justification is by faith alone without works. James seems flatly to contradict that and say that justification is by works. We're going to see why Paul and James appear to teach contradictory truths, but let's read what the Holy Spirit inspired James to say about faith and works and justification. James chapter 2. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. What did the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. See then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works? when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the Spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. We read the Word of God this morning that far. Now we turn to the Catechism and Lord's Day 24 and remind ourselves that last week in Lord's Day 23, With the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we came to the pinnacle of the Christian faith. We are righteous. God approves us because of the righteousness of Christ and not because of us. That's the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Lord's Day 24 adds to Lord's Day 23 nothing new. I like to look at Lord's Day 24 as the exclamation point behind Lord's Day 23 because it's just emphasizing the reality that we're justified not by works. Lord's Day 24, question 2062 asks, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Answer, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law, and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Question 63 asks, Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this life and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. And then 64 But does not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. So you ask, isn't Lord's Day 23 enough? And the answer is, yes, it is enough if you're listening very, very carefully. But it's an aspect of teaching, obviously, that it's always helpful to emphasize the main points. And that's what Lord's Day 24 does. And we need that emphasis of the main point because we're always inclined to fall into the sin, either on the right or on the left. And on the left is cannot my works be just a little bit of my righteousness before God? When I get to heaven, I'm going to present the works of Christ as my righteousness. May I not also add a few of mine on account of which God will approve me and bless me and reward me with everlasting life? Can I not merely add a few of mine to Christ's. 
And the answer of the catechism, because it's the answer of the scripture, is no. Lord's Day 24 is that exclamation point behind Lord's Day 23. No. 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 And we need to say it over and over and over. No. Your good works do not add one iota to your righteousness as you stand before God. Lord's Day 24, as it were, hammers the last nails in the coffin of the one who attempts to be justified by works. It's finished. The Bible makes it clear. To be righteous by believing is to renounce working. The deeds and dying of Jesus rule out the deeds and even your dying in gratitude for God's goodness to you as a part of your righteousness. The deeds and dying of Jesus is enough. That's the only currency that God accepts to approve you and me, not yours. So this Lord's Day asks about the relationship between justification and our good works. Is it perhaps, you ask, the case that because our works don't have anything to do with our justification, that we don't need to work? Is the Bible teaching when it says no to your good works being your righteousness, is the Bible maybe teaching that works aren't important, that works are abolished, that you don't need to work, and that if a minister calls you to work, he's somehow making a mistake? Is that the question? May, to put the question in a different way, may the child of God become careless with regard to good works? That's the question. And so what we're doing this morning is standing on this mountaintop of faith which teaches that justification is by faith alone without works and realizing that from this mountaintop we can see a cliff that we don't fall, want to fall off on the left and another cliff that we don't want to fall off on the right. I'm doing your right and your left. On the left is the cliff, at the bottom of which are rocks that will kill you, of legalism. You can remember left and legalism because they both start with L's. On the left is the doctrine that law will save you. That's what we've been seeing in Lord's Day 23. That's what Paul hammers home against that in the book of Romans and elsewhere. Don't fall off the cliff there. If you are not careful, you will want to add your works to the works of Christ. That's legalism, the doctrine that law saves. But there's another cliff, and that is on the right, And those rocks will kill you also if you fall off that side of this pinnacle of the faith. 
And that's the error of anti-law, being against the law, and the fancy theological word for that is antinomianism. Anti, you know, means against, like anti-Christ is against Christ. Antinomianism is the doctrine that's against the law. This is for the law in the wrong way. The law is going to save you. This is against the law and says we don't need the law at all. Antinomianism. Now here's the point, and we'll see that in the course of the sermon. The Apostle Paul stands guard against this error and says don't fall off the cliff here. And the Apostle James on the other side says And don't make the opposite mistake either by saying the law has no use in the life of the child of God today either. And it's that simple. James doesn't contradict Paul, and Paul doesn't oppose James. They both teach the same truth, looking at it from a different perspective. But people of God are still falling off the cliffs Christians are making those same mistakes. They need to be pulled back from each side and stand on that pinnacle that says justification is by faith alone, not by your works. So let's look at this Lord's Day and the Bible's teaching both in Paul and James under the theme justification and works. And we really ask three questions Number one, are works the basis of justification? Answer, no. Second question, are works the fruits of thankfulness? Answer, yes. And the third question, aren't works rewarded? And the answer is absolutely, but the reward is not because you've earned it, but because of grace. So those three questions and those three answers, are good works the basis? No. Are they the fruits of gratitude? Yes. And are they rewarded? Absolutely, they are. Our good works, and I do this intentionally because I want to point to myself and I want to point to you when we ask this question, are my good works and are your good works, not the unbelievers, not the non-Christians, are our good works the basis for justification. We need to ask the question that way because there are those who say today that we cannot commit, uh, perform any good works. Well, the catechism is not asking about the good works of the unbeliever. The unbeliever can't do any good works. He's not asking about the works of a non-saved Christian, one who's not regenerated. It's impossible for them to do any good works. And we know that, and we believe that. But now we ask the question, can our good works become a part of our righteousness? Because we do perform good works. We need to underline that truth these days in the Protestant Reformed churches because there are many who are making the mistake of saying, you don't perform any good works. Read the Catechism in Lord's Day 24. And the first question, why can't our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness? 
the Reformed faith teaches that we perform good works. In the answer to 62, it talks about our best works. And it doesn't put works in quotation marks as though it's just referring to works in a different sense of the word. It's talking about our good works, about our best works. Now, we're going to see that the Catechism teaches that even our best works are polluted with sin. They are, but we perform good works. And question 64, uh, question 63 makes that same point. What? Don't our good works merit which God will reward in this life and in a future life? We believe because the Bible teaches that we do good works. We can as regenerated Christians. And the apostle teaches that in 1 Thessalonians, for example. Paul begins that epistle by saying, We give thanks to you all, uh, to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, there it is in the Bible. The Bible teaches, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says, I give thanks for your work of faith, and goes on to say, your labor of love and your patience of hope. Faith produces works. Love produces hard work, toilsome labor, and hope makes us endure, bear up under burdens. That's the Bible's teaching that the child of God, regenerated by the Spirit of Christ, is able to perform good works. Here's the point, though. Your good works, though you may do them, do not count as your righteousness before God. They're not the currency that's valid at the tribunal of God. And the Bible, when it says your works don't merit, is not talking about some ceremonial laws, circumcision, sacrificing. That's one of the errors today in Reformed churches. The new perspective on Paul, listen carefully, a new perspective on Paul is a wrong perspective on Paul, says that Paul wasn't talking about our works of obedience to the commandments. Paul was talking when he said, your works don't merit, and you mustn't try to work. Paul was talking, they say, about those Old Testament works of circumcision and the ceremonial law. Oh, no, he wasn't. He was talking about your good works. Your good works of obedience to the commandments, loving God, putting away idols, worshiping properly, honoring your parents, avoiding fornication. Those good works. Living with your parents as you ought and loving your spouse as God calls us. Those works are not your righteousness before God. They're not the ground or basis of God's favor to us. Those works, the Catechism says, can't be either the whole or the part of our righteousness. That's a very important way of putting it. And I think all of us would admit that our good works can't be the whole of our righteousness, that we ignore Christ and say, God, look at my works, approve me on account of them. That's the teaching, not of Christianity, but of non-Christianity. But that's the teaching of those who purport to be Christians, and all you need to do is go to the funeral home of a non-Christian who, whose family asked a Christian pastor to come and say some good words at the funeral, 
And at the funeral, they'll simply eulogize the man who died by saying he was a good man, he loved his wife, he was kind to his children, and he contributed to society. And therefore, they're in heaven. That is, the currency that the non-Christian thinks is valid before God is their good works. All of their good works. They ignore Christ. The catechism is saying our good works cannot be the whole of our righteousness. We know that. But neither can they be a part of our righteousness, and sometimes we forget that. That's the Roman Catholic error, and you remember that the catechism was written to oppose Roman Catholic error. Now, listen carefully to what the Roman Catholics taught. The Roman Catholics didn't say, Christ is our righteousness, and then we put aside Christ and add some of our works as righteousness. No, they would say Christ is the main of our righteousness, and then Christ in us is also a part of our righteousness. They would give credit to Christ for the works that we produce. They would realize, as the Bible teaches, that the only good works we do are produced because of Christ in us. So the Roman Catholics would say Christ for us is the majority of our righteousness, His righteousness imputed to us, but that Christ in us and through us adds to the righteousness of Christ. And then our righteousness is a part of the currency that we present to God in the end for His approval of us. That's the Roman Catholic error. And over against that, the catechism, based on the Bible, says that it is not the righteousness of Christ in us which produces good works in us. That's any part of our righteousness at all. It's all the righteousness of Christ for us. The way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 10, verse 3, is that we need to submit to the righteousness of God. There's an interesting expression there in the book of Romans when the apostle says in chapter 10 that his cousins and uncles and perhaps even brothers were ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness not submitting to the righteousness of God. That's an important expression. They were ignorant of God's righteousness. They went about to establish their own righteousness. They wouldn't submit to God's righteousness. And the call for you in the first point of the sermon this morning is, submit to God's righteousness. Don't try to add your righteousness to it. Accept and receive and embrace by faith Christ alone, alone. Now, there are three ways to submit to the righteousness of God, and that is, in the first place, first of all, you you esteem God's righteousness sufficiently. You mustn't ever underestimate God's righteousness. It's a righteousness that demands perfection. Read the answer to the first question of the catechism again. God demands perfection. 
And if God can be satisfied with the imperfect works that you and I are able to perform, even by His grace, then it's a pretty low form of righteousness. Submit to God's righteousness by esteeming it as you ought. In the second place, submit to God's righteousness by not overestimating the value of your good works. The good works of the child of God that we perform are not perfect, and even the best of them. Read Isaiah 64 once and remind yourself what the filthy rags are. We're too sensitive to name them. Even in public worship, you parents teach your children what those filthy rags are. That's what our good works are like. Our righteousnesses are so polluted with sin that they're like those filthy rags. Don't overestimate your good works. Don't overestimate your best works. Imagine now what your best work is. Just choose a work of yours that you say, by the grace of God, is a good work. Just choose this one, that you're here today. Or choose prayer. Not public prayers, because we're too inclined to really pollute our public prayers because other people are listening. Think of the private prayers that you pray before God. Is any of them perfect? Have any of you ever prayed a prayer where your mind didn't wander or you weren't self-centered in it? The best of our works are polluted with sin. You mustn't overestimate the value of your good works. So you mustn't underestimate God's righteousness. You mustn't overestimate your righteousnesses. And you must not, this is submitting to the righteousness of God, you must not pour contempt upon the righteousness of Christ in the cross. If something needs to be added to the righteousness of Christ, you imagine in the judgment day, you stand before God, there's Christ the judge, and you say, God, my righteousness is Christ's, but I have a little bit of mine that I need to add. What an offense to Christ. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 2, if you want to be righteous by your works, you've made the cross of Christ vain, of no effect. Submit to the righteousness of God. This is a serious matter. It's so serious that if you don't submit to God's righteousness, you perish. You simply do. You fall off the cliff and perish on the rocks below. Paul is saying, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is saying, stay there on that mountaintop of faith and submit to the perfect satisfaction, obedience, and holiness of Christ. All of that is all that you need. This is very, very serious, I say. If you don't submit to that, you're going to perish. I want to tell a little story of a time that some years ago I was observing a building project for the church and daily walked over there to see the progress and struck up conversations with a particular man who was there all of the time who in his banter with me said that I had the easiest job in the world and he had the hardest job in the world. 
I had an easy job because all I had to do is sit in the study and write and read and visit with people and talk. And he had a hard, hard job physically. And then one day he took on a serious tone and he said to me, soon my hard work is going to be finished. I said, what do you mean by that? And he responded by saying, I'm going to die soon and then I won't have anything difficult any longer. I won't have any more grief. And I saw that as an opportunity to witness the Christian faith and said to him, well, you you must be a Christian then. He said, no, I'm not a Christian. And my response to him, I pray I said it in love, was then your hard work now is nothing compared to the difficulties you're going to face in the end because you don't have the righteousness of Christ. His response was, common for a non-Christian. But you know, pastor, I used to smoke and I don't anymore. I used to drink and I don't anymore. And I used to abuse my wife and I've stopped that. I've cleaned up my life. And the response that we must give, whether I did sufficiently or not, is another question. The response we must give to that is, You're not submitting yourself to the righteousness of God. You're ignorant of God's righteousness. You're trying to establish your own. And it won't be of any value to you when you die. And unless you submit to the righteousness of Christ, you're going to perish. That's all. It's that simple. Read the parable in Luke chapter 18 about the guest at the wedding feast who didn't have the garment on. And read what the Apostle writes in Galatians 3.10, as many as are of the works of the law are under the law, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you want to be righteous by works, then every one of your works and every minute and second of your life needs to be perfect. You try to stand before God with perfection. And you will realize you are standing naked before the righteous judge. You need the righteous garment of an alien righteousness. Teach your children that, people of God. Don't let them become like that construction worker who thought that putting away a few sins and becoming an outwardly moral man will justify him and be sufficient. You ought to teach your children that they ought not abuse drugs, that they ought not be drunkards, that they ought not beat their wife and live immorally. But that's not the first thing that you need to teach them. The first thing that you need to teach them is this, submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. It's all we need. Trust Him and Him alone because the blessings of God are for sinners and that's who we are sinners don't overestimate what you do and don't underestimate what you do in sin either he humbles all our pride in the end to liberty and wealth his hand does guide but he humbles our pride But we're not near humble enough because we always think that our works are part of our righteousness. Where do you stand in the sanctuary? Think of the parable of the publican 
and the sinner. You stand in the center, take a glance at all of the others in the congregation and say, God, I'm sure thankful that I'm not like them. Or maybe stand in the middle of the sanctuary and look out to the world and say, God, I'm sure thankful that I don't live like them. Are you the one who's identified as a Christian who stands off in a corner and beats his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what we need to say. That's how we must live. That's what we must teach our children. Don't fall off the cliff here. But our good works are fruits of faith and thankfulness. And we need to say that because the charge is always brought against this doctrine of righteousness by faith alone that we don't need to work. That working isn't important. And that righteousness by faith makes void the law. Now we talk about the error on this side. The charge is always brought, though, against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And you can understand that argument on the surface. Read Romans 3 this afternoon. Read Romans 6 this afternoon. In both those chapters, Paul raises that question. Do we make void the law through faith? That is, when I preach that you are righteous by faith alone, do we discard the law, make it empty and worthless? If our obedience doesn't add to the righteousness of Christ, and if our disobedience doesn't take away from the righteousness of Christ, why ought we obey? Maybe the law is void. There's the error of the antinomian. He comes to the same point in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Now that we've set forth the doctrine that we're righteous by Christ's righteousness and not our own, what shall we say then? May we sin freely so that by our sinning grace may abound. Same objection that he's raising there. There are three answers to that. That is, that if we're righteous by faith alone, we don't need to think about works. We don't need to preach the law. We maybe even can be careless. And if you really teach, this is the objection of, uh, of some on this side, if you really teach that you're righteous by faith, then the people of God are going to become careless. Your works don't merit before God the result of that teaching, so these opponents say, are going to make the people of God free to sin. Now, there are three responses to that. The first one is that that's not even true from a natural point of view. And I don't think this is merely a natural point of view. You're going to recognize it as biblical, but let's just imagine it for a moment from a natural point of view. And illustrate that by asking you mothers and you can think of other mothers who are not Christians, why is it that you give yourselves to your children? Why? Why is it that you sacrifice yourself for them? You say, it's not because I want to earn something, and it's not because I'm afraid of punishment. It's simply because I love them. I love my children. 
And I'm going to work harder, in fact, because I love them than somebody else who's going to earn for their keep. In fact, I'm going to work far harder than someone who's going to earn a keep by taking care of my children. It's not because I want to earn. It's not because I fear punishment. But I'm going to work because I love my children. And that applies across the board. You think of a a man in the military who serves the country in war and goes overseas, perhaps, to put his life on the line. You ask him, why are you doing this? And aside from the weak ones who say, because I have to, you're going to find the ones who say, because I love my country. And I'm suspicious about those mercenaries and the other company, which are also on our side, who are doing this because though they're from another land, they're going to be paid for it. I'm not sure I trust them. They're doing it because of credit. They want to earn something, and I'm doing it because I love my country. The point is that you mustn't say that if we're righteous by faith and free love of God, that that's not going to motivate us to work. We work because we love God. Well, the second answer to that objection on this side now, that righteousness by faith will make you careless, the second answer to that objection is, that's impossible. That's the language that the catechism uses when it says it's impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith would not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. There's a double negative there, but that's important. It's not possible for you who are united to Christ by faith not to perform works, good works, many good works. Well, why is it not possible for you to be without works? Well, because you're united to Christ. The faith that justified you connects you to Christ legally so that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. But that faith that connects you to Christ legally also connects you to Christ spiritually so that His life becomes your life and you live now by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in you. And that power of the Lord Jesus Christ in you produces works, all kinds of works. It's impossible for you not to perform good works if you are united to Christ by faith. And then third, when you are, and here's the heart of it, when you are united to Him by faith, and His righteousness is imputed to you and His life flows in you, you're going to be the most thankful person that ever lived. You're going to realize what you were before Christ and what you are now in Christ and be so thankful you're going to cry. I don't know whether I may say it, but is it possible to think that God created tear ducts even though it says there won't be any more tears in heaven, that God, that is, tears of sorrow, that there may be tears of joy? Didn't you ever cry? You were so happy. This truth, this truth makes you so happy. I'm righteous, free, free for Christ's sake. And I live now. I'm alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Look at where I would be if I didn't have Christ. Look at the path I was on before I had him. Look at some of my former friends and where they are now because they've rejected Christ and the misery that they are living in now. I'm so thankful that I have Christ. I want to serve him and obey him. And that's not hard when you're thankful. That answer isn't valid. That is, in the second point of the sermon, looking at this side over here, first of all, we need to say the objection that those bring to righteousness by faith alone without works is going to make you careless is not valid for Christians, not valid at all. But the second thing we need to say in this second point with regard to the error on the right is that we need to be very careful in the church of Christ because we're all sinners and sometimes our sin is such that we say in our weakness works aren't very important. And then when our weakness becomes very weak we think that the minister is weak when he calls you to work. We accuse the minister you haven't some do of being Arminian when he says you need to obey the commandments and if you don't obey the commandments you're going to be chastened. You need to walk on the path of obedience and it's only on that path that you find the blessing of God. People who hear that preaching say that's a weak minister, that's an Arminian minister. No, he isn't. You are weak who make that objection because you don't see that there is also a cliff on this side. And that's what James addressed in his epistle. You see, the truth of justification by faith alone can be abused. Can be. And that's why God inspired James to write what he did. He doesn't contradict Paul. He's looking at justification from a different perspective. He's guarding the air on the right where Paul was guarding against the air on the left. Both talking about the same justification. Paul talking about actual justification. Now these are two important words. Actual justification. And James is talking about what's called demonstrative justification. That is what demonstrates that a child of God is in fact a child of God. Paul asks how can a man be justified? James asks how can a man show that he is justified? Same justification. Paul talks about actual justification. James is talking about demonstrative justification. Demonstrate to me that you are justified. How? By your works. A man is justified by his works. Abraham is justified by his works. Rahab was justified by her works. Abraham justified by his love to God. I'm willing to give up my son for God's sake. Rahab justified by her love for the neighbor. She hid the spies at the risk of her own life. She demonstrated that she was righteous. She didn't become righteous by hiding the spies. And Abraham demonstrated that he was righteous by sacrificing his son. He didn't become righteous. They were both righteous by faith. But there is an error on this side, and we need to be careful with it. One more point about that, though, in James. This is the verse 
And this is the book that the Roman Catholics used against Martin Luther. When Martin Luther pounded the pulpit, faith alone, no works, the Roman Catholics said, what about James? Martin, what about James? A man is justified by his works. And they persisted in using this passage and this book so much against Luther that he was exasperated and in a couple of points of weaknesses said, James is not worth a bale of straw, comparing it obviously to hay. And another time James said, let's, uh, Luther said, let's throw James in the fire. Well, don't throw James in the fire. But understand what later Luther saw, that James was not contradicting Paul. Both were talking about the same justification, but guarding against different errors. So let's guard against that error, against the abuse of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by saying works aren't important. Oh, and we're coming to that in the catechism. God willing, Reverend Geichelar will preach that when he gets to Lord's Day 32 and beyond. We're now, this morning, just putting that exclamation mark behind Lord's Day 23, but realizing, be careful, don't minimize the importance of works. And teach your children that too. Free justification, children. You don't have to work to be right before God. And that doesn't mean that you don't have to work. We are so weak, people of God. And the Bible recognizes those weaknesses too when God says, and when you work, I'm even going to reward you. Your works don't merit But in grace, I'm going to reward those works. Isn't that marvelous? Read what Jesus said in Matthew 6 and Matthew 10. Read again what he said in Mark chapter 10. When the rich man left everything, wasn't willing to leave everything and follow Jesus, the disciples said, but we did. We left everything for you. And then Jesus encourages them by the promise of reward. There's no one who's left father, mother, brother, sister, houses and lands for my sake, but he shall be rewarded in the end with a hundredfold. You lose one house for the sake of Christianity, Jesus promises a hundred of them. That is the value of a hundred of them. You give up a family for the sake of Jesus Christ, you're going to have the value of a hundred families. There's going to be a reward for you who do your good works. And isn't that marvelous that God deals with us as we deal with our children? You reward your children, don't you, when they work a little bit? You don't say to your children, do you, do the dishes, go out and rake the lawn, pick up the sticks in the yard before I mow, and you ought to do that because I gave everything to you, you owe me. No, you say, you could never pay me, my son, for what I've done for you. You could never pay me, my daughter, for what I've given to you. Work out of gratitude, and I'm even going to give you a little reward. Let's go to the ice cream store tonight after you pick up the sticks. I'll give you a couple dollars so you can use it at the candy store on our vacation. And all of that is just an illustration of the goodness of God to us. We can't pay God back for what He's given to us in Christ. We can never 
give to him the value of what he gave to us, but we work. And in response to that work, God says, I'm going to reward you, reward you. So we stand, people of God, in grace. Always in grace. Not because of works. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us is mine. He gives me a straight A. And when I ask, where did that A come from? Because I don't deserve it. We remind ourselves it's an alien righteousness that is from outside of us that's imputed to us freely. And we receive that by faith alone and not by works. What a gospel we have. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the gospel. Do not allow us to try to credit our works. and Do not allow us to be careless with regard to works but to labor faithfully in gratitude for the free salvation we have in Christ. Father, may we not be motivated by the threat of punishment. May we be motivated by gratitude every day. Forgive us, Lord, all our weaknesses. Deal with us not according to what we deserve, but in the merits of Christ, and humble us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.